0: From Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Drums, please! Summer, summer, summer time! Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Gamble. Listeners, do you feel that? Somehow, we find ourselves in the middle of summer 2021. It seems like the year has just begun, and here we find ourselves already in the back half. And before we get into this week's episode, if you haven't already heard, we have a very special announcement. Arbitration Idol is back. That's right. The fundraising campaign that we did for UNICEF last year is back in full swing. Added with a whole new slate of idols from across the globe. And just like last year, all you have to do in order to win coffee, digital coffee that is, with one of these leaders in the arbitration field is donate, which will enter your name into a drawing. And donations can start as low as one euro. The contest opened earlier this week and you can literally enter right now. Mandy, Svegna, and I are glad to be able to continue this fun event and hope that you'll join in the fun this year. All right. Let's get into this week's episode. The brilliant philosopher Lynn manuel Miranda once said, a legacy is planting seeds in a garden you may never get to see. Achievement, legacy, impact, all are underlying themes with this week's guest, Barry Appleton. Barry has done just about everything one can do in international law, from working with investor state disputes, working in private disputes, serving as arbitrator, teaching, writing, speaking, and mentoring. He also happens to be one of the co-chairs of the American Bar Association's International Arbitration Committee. And while he talks about all of the above, he also often speaks about some really interesting humanitarian and philanthropic work as well. So sit back, put on your sunglasses and best summertime outfit and enjoy my conversation with Barry Appleton. And we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to tales of the tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell here to tell you another tale, another story from the wide wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Listeners with me today, I have one of the all time greats. You may know him, you may have heard of him, but I'm excited to introduce you to someone that I have known over the past several years from a number of different things. But today we're gonna be talking about all of the things that he's been involved with. I'm speaking of course, of Barry Appleton.
1: Barry, welcome to the show. Chris, I am delighted to join you on another episode of Tales of the Tribune. Great, and Barry, so you know, You and I know each other, but
0: I want you to get to know the audience out here. So I'm going to start this question with, who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know?
1: Okay, well, um, I'm a practicing international public lawyer, and I'm a law teacher. Um, I run uh, an international uh, arbitration firm called Appleton Associates International Lawyers. Uh, We were pioneers in dealing with investor state arbitration. I've also been a law teacher. I thought it was very important from a very early time to be able to get out and help the public understand about international arbitration and the peaceful resolution disputes, and so I've been teaching now for 27 years. I'm uh, currently the co-director of the uh, International Law Center at the New York Law School uh, in uh, in New York City, uh, where I teach international uh, arbitration and international business, and I uh, coach the Jessup Moot Team, and the VIS International Commercial Arbitration Moot Team, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about some of those opportunities for students later on in the show. But uh, I also have the privilege of being the co-chair of the American Bar Association's International Arbitration Committee, and that gives me a wonderful opportunity to engage with, with students and lawyers and arbitrators around the world talking about one of my favorite subjects which is international oppression. and that's why I am so happy to be here
0: on your show today. Well, that's great, and um, and there are, as you suggested there, there are a lot of different paths to follow from that answer, but let's rewind
1: just a little bit. Where's home? Uh, I'm originally from the United States, but I I live in Toronto, Canada. I've lived there most of my life. Uh, I'm a Canadian barrister and solicitor. I'm a U.S., attorney, licensed in New York, uh, District of Columbia, and the US Court of International Trade. Uh, I've been practicing in both countries uh, for a long time. And I wrote the first binational law book actually ever, published in both jurisdictions, talking about the North American Free Trade Agreement, the NAFTA. And so I spent my career on both sides, explaining sort of Canadians to Americans, and explaining Americans to Canadians. Kind of a different conversation sometimes, and really interesting. But it's all about international law and the idea of trying to be better understood and understanding about diversity and community. And that's sort of what gets me going in the morning, in the context of international law.
0: Well, no, that's a, that's unique in um, a very particular sort of disposition, and it's um, and I think for a lot of our listeners at home, one that might be it might sound natural as um, globalized, international in terms of mindset. Um, Staying just a bit recorded, or rewinded for a moment. What got you interested in law in the first place? I mean, did, would you just wake up with a, you know, with a wig on your head, or you know, <laughs> what what led you to the practice of law? Uh,
1: you, you know, I I was really interested in public policy and an uh, in international thing. So I, I thought that I would be a diplomat. So I, I went to school. My my first degree was at the University of Toronto in international relations. I thought I'd be a diplomat, um, and and, and when I, I did that, I, I realized that I really liked international law, and because I was an American and, and a Canadian, I could have gone to the Canadian Foreign Service, I could have gone to the State Department. Um, so I said, look, I want to learn some more. So I, I went to Queen's University, which is a Canadian law school, with a very deep program in international law. And I worked hard and I studied, but I still didn't really get it all up uh, so Uh, I I spent a short time in private practice with a large international firm, and then I decided to deepen my understanding. I did this by going to a graduate school at Cambridge University, where I did a master's in law specializing in international law, and there I had a wonderful mentor who was the professor of international law who really got the neurons firing in my head about what international law could do, about that flexibility of it, about how it wasn't just old stuff in old little jars, how we could modernize it, how we could make and breathe new life into the concepts for a modern regulatory state. And that really got me going. Um, I went from there. I did some public service. It was really important for everybody to be involved in some public service. So I spent three years in government. Uh, I uh, worked on constitutional change in Canada, and then I worked on the negotiation, the implementation of the NAFTA, and I went from that into uh, advising governments on what later would be known as investor state, dispute settlement, the concepts, early elements of that. Um, and then I spent most of my time advising on the business side. So I was always interested in international law and policy I thought we could probably do better. I thought there could be more that we could do. Um, and then I took that and found a way of practicing law to make that come together. So how could I take public policy and make it realizable? Plus, how could I help other people understand more? So I did that by teaching. I did that by public speaking. I did that by community engagement and involvement. Those were all different ways I could engage in my community and the ways that the community has made me a more interesting person, I think. And I hope that I've been able to give back along the way.
0: Well, sure, no, and that, that's, a, that's a great answer. And, you know, listeners, you know, uh, Barry, don't let Barry fool you. Barry's got some experience uh, recording and, you know, doing some, uh, as he said, public speaking types of things as well, um, and maybe a podcast of your own. Do you do some of that?
1: I, I, I really like podcasting because I like sharing content and information. But, you know, it, one of the most amazing things about this terrible COVID period has been that it's forced us all to reevaluate what we're doing with our lives and also to see what resources were there. And you know, one of the things I was able to discover during this whole period was Tales of the Tribunal. I didn't know about Tales of the Tribunal. I didn't know about the extraordinary resources that everybody could have just by going to their, their mobile device or to their computer and to be able to get more enrichment and engagement. And so that was really an important uh, turning point for me. I could see that I wasn't alone. I could share ideas and get new content and new ideas. So even though we were all stuck sort of in our own little places, waiting it all out, uh, it wasn't like in the 1400s when we would be hiding in a cave somewhere for the plague to go away. We could actually accomplish and do things. And that's because technology allows us to be distanced but yet not apart, And that is one of the fundamental changes, both for arbitration and for everything else. And so I think that's going to change how law works. It certainly is going to change the way I think and I behave, and I'm sure it's going to have an impact on the way we the world goes forward. So thank you sure. for what you do, and thank the other people who are doing this too. It's not not just about the fabulous stuff that you're doing, Chris, but it's about a movement of people that we have opportunities and engagement so that wherever I am in the world, I can have those opportunities. It used to be that if I was in New York City, I had great opportunities, but if I wasn't in New York City, I didn't. Now we can share the diversity of resources. We can share cutting edge ideas. We get more community, we get more ideas, and it's about the stuff I don't know it's the ideas I don't get exposed to. That's what makes me have new ideas. And I learn more from that than I'm ever going to learn from people who say the same thing as me. That's the whole idea.
0: No, I mean, I think that last point is, um, is really resonant. And I think that all of us have had this sort of experience at least once or twice, if not mo- many times by now, is this, you know, new phenomenon where you can have breakfast in Hong Kong, um, lunch in London, you know, uh, afternoon tea. Um, perhaps in Lisbon and then go to fly across the ocean and um, have, you know, afternoon snack and dinner in the U S and, and wrap your day up somewhere in the Pacific to do it all over again in the form of these conferences and these events and these sorts of calls. I mean, it's, it's really sort of a um a, I'm a two in the blink of an eye, a, a quick revolution and how not just the legal industry, but I think a lot of different industries are going to continue to connect and engage with its members and
1: people around the world. Chris, I've had some great days because I look, I I I was used to traveling, okay, so I would be on average on a plane four times a week, okay, so I'm really out of my groove with COVID, okay, for sure. However, <laughs> however, I could have a day where I'd start my day in Singapore and I'd end up going to an amazing conference in London, uh, Bickle, the British International Comparative Law. They would have these amazing conferences, and then I'd be able to catch an ABA talk that was out in Mexico City, and then be able to still get other things into my day. I mean, that was amazing. Lots of ideas, lots of content, lots of shared uh, ability. Plus, I had new perspectives. I wasn't just thinking the old stuff. I wasn't just drinking the Kool-Aid. I was able to get something a little bit different. And that, to me, is not, we're not going back we're gonna have hybrid models. So look, I would love the idea of going to a real cocktail party again. I I believe in cocktail parties, and for sure, I wanna see them again. But I also like the idea of being able to be a virtual fly on the wall and to be able to participate through remote types of activities And then I've got things that pick it up, like podcasts, like other types of fabulous things. There's some amazing stuff, for example, that NIAC does, that Ranga Rangachari puts out. So all of a sudden, the world, which is a big place, is a lot smaller. And and that's a good thing. It, It means that everyone can share the benefits of what's going on in a very equitable and equal way. And I like that a lot.
0: Well, sure. And I, I think that's absolutely right, Barry. And, you know, one of those things that you've mentioned there, and I think kind of segues nicely, is uh, from the organizations you just mentioned, and then also in your introduction, you wear a lot of hats. <laughs> um, you have a lot of different roles. And that's 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 a good thing. Um, can you tell us about a couple or a few of the hats that you're wearing right now?
1: Uh, well, um, so I've told you that I'm I I, I do international uh, investor state arbitration. Um, I'm very interested in in that area. So that's sort of my my day job. I also spend a lot of time teaching. It's a very important uh, part of what I do. So I do writing, but I do a a lot of engagement talking about international law. It's a very important part. But on top of that, I do a lot of other things. So Chris, um, I run a charitable foundation. And um, and the Appleton Charitable Foundation is very engaged in a, a number of public policy areas that are not connected to law. And one of the areas that we've been really deeply involved with, I guess there, there are two main areas, but they actually get related, as you'll see. One was about climate change. And we, we worked on climate change issues for the last 20 some odd years. And that brought me working very closely with First Nations, particularly first nations in the high arctic and i've spent a lot of time working with the inuit and inuit elders and communities from greenland all the way over to alaska understanding the nature of of what's going on in their communities and the impact of a changing environment um and because of that our, our foundation has done a lot of work on indigenous reconciliation projects in fact Today is uh, July the 9th when we're taping, and it's Nunavut Day. And Nunavut Day is the national holiday in the uh, Canadian Nunavut region. That is a self-governing indigenous region of Inuit uh, peoples, approximately 34,000 people. Uh, and I, I've had the opportunity to go all, all through Nunavut uh, over the years. Um, and it's an important time for reconciliation and self-government. Um, I also work with all types of institutions in trying to get the discussion, debate. Uh, I do a lot of work with a thing called the Appleton Initiative. Right now, we're working at the Humacook uh, Inuit Art Center at the uh, Winnipeg Art Gallery. I'm also doing a project with the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York about First Nations engagement in New York. We just did a successful program there. So, And we're working on, on something else now out in Europe. We're broadening the discussion, debate, trying to deal with the issues of reconciliation, of grief, of grievance. Uh, First Nations, especially in Canada, are dealing with a a really horrific fact that we've now discovered almost a thousand graves, uh, mostly of children at residential schools in Canada. Their histories have been obliterated and forgotten. Uh, It's a very troubling and difficult type of subject. This concept of, of reconciliation, it, it's not just a Canadian concept. It, 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 it's something that's deeper, and we see it all over. We, we, we see it not just in, in Canada or in the United States, but we see this process of grief and grievance and the idea of trying to have what, what I call transitional justice, ways of trying to cope with, with systemic unfairness. How do we deal with that? How do we make the the situation understandable? How do we make the world a better place? What can we do about that? And so I've I've been very focused in terms of my social activism, my philanthropy, to be able to deal with that. And 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 one thing I think is important, Chris. Um, about twenty-some odd years ago, I, I was in a was finishing up a big case. It was my first big case as an international lawyer, uh, and i was in a terrible car crash i was in that taxi in washington dc it crashed into the back of the airport uh that taxi flipped upside down the driver broke his neck i was injured and i thought maybe i wasn't going to make it and i decided from that time that if i had the opportunity to be able to to get back and do the things that i was doing before i was going to be committed to making a difference i was going to be committed to dedicating my resources and my time to do something that would be meaningful. And so that, that was really the first sort of focus point in my life, a point of inflection, where that's why we started the foundation, that's why we started this commitment to giving back, to doing things in a bigger way, to trying to deal with bigger issues, bigger than ourselves. And it, it's helped shape me as a lawyer, it's helped shape those that work with me in our firm. It's helped shape me as a teacher and as a person. And so I, I just think that this adds a little something. Um, I, I came to all of this uh, as somebody. I, 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 I was born with a mobility disorder. I wasn't able to be able to, to walk. I was in a cast for a number of years. I would have been in a wheelchair. I've been able to get past that. People would know that. But I see myself as someone who has to push a little harder, and I understand what barriers can be, even though otherwise I, I have all types of privilege, I still see myself as not having that. And I can, I'm, I'm more empathetic to those types of issues because of it. It's made me a better person, even though I might not be a great runner or a great swimmer. But uh, So I'm not going to be in the Olympics but I'm able to do a lot of other things. And so that perspective has to change you, has to give you a different way. And so between that and then that accident, I decided we really had to do something. So I've been deeply committed to the social mission in addition to the legal mission and the teaching mission. So that, that's sort of who I am and what sort of brings me to this, but it's different. It's a different story. And that's the beautiful thing about diversity. We all have our own different stories and it, you wouldn't know unless you propped, you, you prodded me a little bit. And so I've never, I've never talked about this, but uh, hey, I figure if you want to come to Tales of the Tribunal, you got to get the inside scoop. So season three, we've got to get something good here. <laughs> well, that's right. And, you know, from all of that that you've
0: just shared, I mean, you're not a man on a mission. You're a man on missions um, from what, uh, from what you've just said. And, and, and in particular, that last thread, that last point, I think is is exceedingly important. Um, this this concept of diversity, and I think some of the issues that you've raised just there can kind of challenge. You know, I think when people hear the word diversity, there's something that comes to their mind. It might mean gender diversity, it might mean cultural, ethnic, um, and oftentimes, especially in in for Americans, it often just only means in the American context. So, I'd be curious to hear about how you define diversity, how you see it and what sort of interplay you think that maybe is going on right now in the international arbitration space?
1: Well, first of all, diversity is one of the, the huge issues of our day because it is something that we can do something about. So, so But if you want to really be serious about diversity, you have to sit down and go outside your, what, what's just comfortable. You've got to go outside what's just familiar. One of the things is is that especially in international arbitration, people always did I would say plus one. They would just do what they did before, or just add one little incremental change. Okay, so somebody was really good in the case, so we're going to get them again. And so therefore, you get the same people all the time, the same lawyers, the same arbitrators, the same institutions. Um, and it's time to open up a little bit in that, not just a little bit, a lot. Why? We got lots of people that can be fair, impartial, independent decision makers, but they'll never have that opportunity if you're going to do it only based on their experience because they were shut out before. They're going to be shut out again. So we have to think. So we got lots of different diversities. Okay. So what what I tell people when I think about this is that I want a tribunal or an institution to be as representative as our markets and as our clients and as our communities. And when I look at my pool of arbitrators, that, that just doesn't happen. So we got to try harder. And what does that mean? So first of all, I personally have been deeply committed to breaking down barriers, what type of barriers, Well, we started with gender barriers, because that was the, the first thing was that there was a tremendous gender imbalance. Then we looked at racial barriers, and we looked at legal system barriers. I looked at ageism as a barrier. We looked at issues about you know when, when we have opportunities to give people advancement by uh, lots of, of, of public events. Like the ABA, which I'm deeply involved with, we, we do a lot of public events. So I make sure that when we do panels, that we look at all types of diversity. That diversity isn't just gender or legal or language or region, we're going to look at sexual orientation. We're going to look at your perspective from where you're going to come. I'm going to look at an age balance. I'm going to look at a variety of different ways so I can get a diversity of you. I don't learn stuff from the people who tell me everything I know. I don't want everybody to tell me, hey, Barry, you're great. Yeah, thumbs up. Chris, you're a great guy. Yeah, so then we can say to each other, yeah, you're great. That, we <laughs> learn nothing, okay? Right. I learn it from someone who wants to call me names. And trust me, there are lots of people that want to call me names, and that's fine. They're probably And they're paid to call me names, and that's okay. That's good. We get lots of diversity, we get lots of different ideas, but we need to find that. So diversity needs to be in our institutions if it's gonna make a difference, because they have to be sensitive to this. Diversity's gotta be in the panels, because otherwise all we're doing is reflecting the same common views, and we need to be able to go outside that. And so that's not an easy process for sure. There are vested interests. And if you're talking, for example, in my area, which is international investor state, whether you're talking about public law, and you're talking about private arbitration, if you're talking about a mixture of the two, you know, there, there are a lot of interests that, that conflict. But I think the process is better when you bring more people in, and you get more diversity. I do the same thing with opportunities for students to be able to get more exposure and ways that we do that. And the same with the ABA, where we've been working very hard to get more opportunities, more exposure, and give people more opportunities to participate and to have meaningful engagement in the process. Because if we don't do that, you're not going to have audience, you're not going to have real engagement, and diversity starts there. So that's sort of my my thing. I say we've got to try harder if, if you're going to make any a difference. Same thing with the issue of reconciliation and First Nations. Same thing on diversity. If if you're not prepared to try harder, you're not going to get anywhere. You might as well just go home.
0: Sure. And 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 so and before we come off that that diversity point, Barry, I would follow up just to um, on one more question. So from an institutional standpoint, or maybe just you know if you're just if you're leading an organization or you're trying to think of, we recognize and we appreciate that we want to be more cognizant of diversity issues. What are a couple of things that come to mind um, when you hear that? If someone came to you and said, Barry, we want to address diversity in our organization, what should we be doing?
1: Well, I, I think the first thing you need to do is you need to have a talk with everybody and ask them, "I get their view, what do you think? That, that's, just the, that's not the, the be all of it, it's just the starting spot. But you need to understand where you're at understand where you're not. And then, okay, so because when we have diversity, we also need to have inclusion. The idea of diversity isn't to exclude all the people that are involved. It's to include them in a process of exploration, discovery, and bring new voices and new opportunities in. But the new people, they want, they don't want you to throw everything out too. They want to have to participate in the benefits of what's been going along. We wanna share the benefits. So we gotta bring it, it's, it's two sides of this. There's two hands. They have to hold each other as we get together into this. In addition, I go out of my way to say, where have we not had people? So maybe it's, we've got lots of people that are senior and not a lot of people that are junior. What are the opportunities that we can do for mentoring, for internship, for exposure, for real meaningful debate. What are the types of things that we can do to give difference of of legal culture? And some, I mean, Chris, you're a guy, you've been all over the world. There are real differences in culture. If I just got one type of culture going, I may drown everybody out. So I have to find quiet spaces, meditative spaces, so people can have their opportunity to come in in their own way. And I try to be as cognizant of that as I can. And especially with organizations that are global, we have to be extra sensitive to those things. And what's really interesting, the American Bar Association, uh, which I'm very privileged to be able to do a lot of work with, it's a global body, it's not just American. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I have the opportunity of bring people from all over. So we have to be cognizant of the different ways that they perceive themselves, the rule of the law, the way they want to be heard, and we find opportunities for them to advance so that when we finish all this, I say in the faded glass of memory, when this is all done, and I can think back of this 15 years from now, I go back, I'm going to say, I did something that made that place better. I left it in a better place. I found people that were better than me who could be able to do things, and I gave new opportunities to people. That is what I'm about, and that's what I'm hoping the organization's able to do. That, to me, is what you get with diversity. You can get something that can evolve on its own organically with engagement. And one of the nice things about this podcast is that there are people who are going to be listening out there on your podcast who are going to say, you know, I could get involved. I could do something. And there's a place. We have a home if you want to. If you're interested in international arbitration, we've got something you can do. We can keep you up. With information, we can keep you involved, we can keep you engaged. And that is the beautiful thing about the the this technology, about what we can do now, is that we can connect everybody in a much easier way. So diversity and technology go together in a very positive way. At least that that that's my worldview here. And I think we can we can do it. So as long as I'm I'm able to do this, that's sort of the the direction I've been sort of pushing. It. And that then that's a great direction. and And speaking of
0: directions, one of the things that you've mentioned, and uh, definitely we we would be remiss if we did not talk about is your involvement with the American Bar Association. and i'll and I'll tee it up just a little bit further. You know, um, oftentimes I'll have conversations with people, and i and I don't get upset with them uh, because i I know that not everyone has had the same experience with the ABA as I have. and it's been a positive one. But there is this perception whether fair, or unfair, that you know you'll hear people say things like oh the aba they just collect dues and they don't do anything um and that the aba should be doing more tell me about your role and your involvement with the aba so i can dispel so we can dispel those myths
1: let me tell you about my, my idea about the aba is to find wonderful places for people who can do things connect meet mingle and network because I think that that is so important for everybody, and the ABA provides an unbelievably good home for people who are interested about law, the rule of law, and international arbitration. And so, while the ABA is a big place, we've been able to create a large number of of homes, of safe places for people to be able to do things. So, let me give you some examples. Um, if you're interested in public policy, if you're interested in issues about how arbitration should work. The ABA offers lots of opportunities to be engaged. And we Yesterday we had a, a meeting looking at issues that are currently before the uh, UNCITRAL, which is uh, UNCITRAL as a working group looking at ways of reforming investor state. Uh, they've asked for comments. We had a, a meeting with uh, folks in three continents, connect in to come up with a policy for the ABA to look at issues about Access to justice and funding for uh, claims. So that was a really interesting thing. Another issue that we had was looking at better ways of dealing with conflict of interest or having better protections for uh, an independent and impartial rule of law system. We have lots of these. So that's one side of this. Another way is if you want to just get involved and meet people who are also involved. So let's say I want to understand about core skills. ABA had an unbelievably good program to help young practitioners get core skills about international arbitration. We called it the International Arbitration Masterclass. It went on for uh, two days, and we had some of the leading experts in the world provide on online hands-on training so that you didn't lose the opportunity, even though many arbitrations weren't going on, many courts were closed. You could get some of the best and the brightest, and they would work with you one-on-one and mentor you to get your core skills. There are opportunities to meet people from all over the world. I've had that by meeting people at conferences, but I can now do this online. And the meetings, we have these monthly meetings of the International Arbitration Committee, and we're very fortunate that we are able to bring some of the most interesting leading figures in the world to come and talk at the beginning. And some of those talks have included Uh, judges of the International Court of Justice, people who are engaged in what I call mission-related issues. Uh, Our last uh, presentation was from the uh, president of the Atlanta Arbitration Society, Atlas. It was Brent Clickscale, who is a fabulous speaker, talking about practical ways of dealing with diversity. We've had talks about climate change and arbitration. We've had focus on Uh, on a variety of issues, so lots of ways. So really what it is, is if you want to have more exposure, if you want to have more contact, if you want to find a really good way, is how can I find a job in this area? Something a lot of young people want to do, or I want to change what I'm doing, or I want to think more about the issues, or maybe I need to think about a new area like uh, personal privacy, or some of the issues that come with that. This is a central spot where you can get involved. And by the way, it can be in mediation, it can be in commercial arbitration, it can be in investor state arbitration, it can be in international law. Our international law section can cover so many different areas and we have opportunities for people all different ways. So, it's really not about what is the organization going to do about taking your money. It's more what can we do to get you engaged? What can we do to get you involved? What can you do to meet more people and make something meaningful out of it? And and that's really the commitment. Sorry, that was a long way of trying to get through that. But it's it's such a big organization. There's so many things on the go, Chris. No, I agree. And so so let's say
0: someone's listening right now and they hear this and they say, okay, I, I'm sold. I, at least I want to dip my toe into the
1: ABA universe. Um, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, There is a, uh, you could send an email to me. Uh, I love facilitating and getting people connected. do this all the time. Uh, So so that's one way. There's an ABA Connect website that you can press a button and connect in. The uh, International Arbitration Committee has its own website. We can connect in with that. Um, But the most important thing is that if you're interested, you just reach out for sure there is going to be a way to connect. And we spend our ways by finding mentors. Well, I have provided connections for mentoring opportunities for students, for young practitioners. Probably I must have done uh, 15 of these just in the last three months. Just people that want to find a home because it's so difficult with COVID. COVID's had us all feeling that we were apart. I need to find ways to help us feel together. And that's what, the ABA and other professional organizations can do find ways of bringing us together in this time of adversity, and so that we can come out of this doing a little bit better. That's well, I think that's true, and and we'll include a, your email
0: in the show notes. And I, I make that same offer to the listeners at home. If you want to find out how to get involved with the ABA, particularly the International Arbitration Committee, feel free to drop it, slide into the inbox, drop us a note, and we'll make sure that you get put in the right place. Um, but I do want to pick up on uh, the one thing that you just said, Barry. Um, talking about mentoring, he um, said uh, I think 50 or so in the last, or maybe it was 15 in the past three months or so. Um, why, why, why does mentoring resonate so so strongly with you? Is
1: that where where did that sort of passion for mentoring come from? Well, well, well. First of all, I I was very fortunate. I, I had some fabulous mentors in my own life. Uh, and, and that was really uh, a wonderful thing. Uh, I, I had um, a professor that I taught with at uh, New York University, Andy Lowenfeld. He was a, an unbelievable guy. He was a scholar and a gentleman. Uh, in, in equal measure, he really focused because he had been in the State Department and he had been a teacher, but he was really focused in trying to make international arbitration livable and reasonable, and he was incredibly decent. Uh, and then I, I had another guy, totally not from law, uh, Darcy Rizak. He was the author of The Frog and the Prince. He, he taught me that you may make your best connections from your loose networking connections. He used to say, you have to kiss a lot of frogs to meet a prince. And you've <laughs> got to have a lot of exposure. I say you've got to have moots and meetings and mingles. You've got to have lots of different experiences before you're going to find it. It's not just one super date that's going to make your, your life. It's going to be a series of ongoing connections. So we get that from the podcast. We get that at the ABA. So that made a big difference. And the last one was my friend. Uh, he was a Canadian senator. His name was Senator Keith Davey. And he used to say, today's newspaper wraps tomorrow's fish. And that was his way of saying, nobody has a newspaper anymore. We, we do everything electronically. Uh, we still have fish, but we all not wrap them with that. But he said, don't think short term. Think long term. It, it's not just what happened today. How is this going to play out in the longer term? and And this was really, I think, important. So I like to help students. I like to help young practitioners get a start. I like to help them, even if they like i I, I hire people, I try to give them starts myself. but if I can't, I try to fix them up i'm I'm like trying to fix everybody up on a date. I'll try to fix them up with somebody. It may be an internship, it may be. Uh, something that can pay them. It may be a legal research spot. We do that with my my center at the New York Law School. We just want to find people ways of being able to get engaged because if you don't get that first opportunity, you might never get it. And it's trying to find ways. And then the last thing that I'm really interested in, Chris, is finding ways to use the benefits, the scale of technology, to reach out to people who otherwise don't get it. I mean. For years, I've been flying to New York to teach. Why? Because New York's a wonderful spot for international law, and it had more resources than where I was in Toronto. But the fact of the matter is, is that why am I not using that to go to other schools and other places? And I hope to do that in this year, to reach out to other what I call underserved international law communities where we can provide content-rich, nutrient-rich, information to help them whether it's in the context of doing a moot or whether it's the context of learning core skills we do that at the aba why can't we do that individually and so that's part of my own personal mission to try to do something better on that in this year too Covid's helped me to see that we can do that as well so those are sort of the impact of the role models and hoping that i can give back in some way that they gave to me
0: well no, that, that that's great and um Finding a, a great mentor and some of the things that you're describing are even elements of what we would call sponsorship. You know, of um, not. You know, of course, it's useful to pass information back and forth, but really standing up for folks, helping them get where they're trying to go, uh, is is sort of that additional element that that can be helpful. And um, and I'm sure your mentees appreciate that.
1: Uh, well, we'll see. Uh, let's see what I'm <laughs> sure they'll be listening to this to this show, and let's see what they have to say.
0: <laughs> right. Um, you know, one, one more topic that I, I definitely wanted to, to get your thoughts on because it has been something that you've been an advocate for and something that you have written about and spoken about um, is this idea of enhancing transparency in international arbitration and dispute resolution. Um, you know, as we would talk about that, I guess kind of open up that topic. Can you start with describing what you mean when you say transparency?
1: Uh, well, well, chris, I, I, I think that's really important because often people think that arbitration is the antithesis of transparency. Arbitration is about making things secret and keeping things away from the public. So first first thing is I, we need to sort of separate. You have investor state, and then you have commercial arbitration. And in commercial arbitration, there may be less of a need for transparency, though I actually think there's a benefit from that as well. because so I think there's there's a benefit for everybody in dispute resolution to have an open process. However, let's focus in on on the the big bugaboo here, the issue which is gonna be about investor state. Investor state deals with public policy and public laws. And I have been a strong proponent of open systems, of open hearings, of uh, of amicus briefs and, and open opportunities to see the record. And in fact, it's really interesting. Uh, At the beginning, I had severe opposition from governments. They did not want the public to to know things. They might say publicly, we're in favor, but actually in private, they would block it every time. And I've done everything I can to open that process up because I think that you just get fear and confusion and a lack of understanding when people don't know what's going on, especially if it impacts on the public and public law. And so transparency was key. But you know, it's interesting, because not only have I been at council, but I have been an applicant for uh, amicus briefs, because I think it's important that you actually file briefs if you're not a participant, and I have been denied, and the public have been denied, repeatedly, the opportunity. So there's more that we can do. There's more, and I, strenuously work again and again, because I believe that the public have a right, they have a right to know what's going on, and they have a right to know why governments are making decisions that they do. And they only do that when the record is public, when the information's public, and repeatedly we have situations where governments don't make that available to the public, and the public have a right to know, the governments have a duty to give them that information, And it's got to be up to lawyers who know where those things are to let the public know so that they can know, so that Congress and legislative oversight committees can tell. Otherwise, the process can't work. And that only leads to fear and confusion and a lack of trust in the system. Now, when we talk about commercial arbitration, we also get that, especially when we look at judicial review. And judicial review opens that system up, and we need to be thinking again, carefully, particularly when you look at conflict of interest and disclosure. And that is the big challenge for arbitration, that we need to have better ways of being able to deal with that. Diversity is a big way of helping to reduce that. Okay, more diverse your pool, less likely you're going to have conflict. But we need to make sure that we have that. So diversity and disclosure are our best ways and when we get that is when you see transparency. They all fit together. But thanks for asking. It's, it's, it's high up on my list of things I think are important for us as a profession.
0: Well, sure, I, I would tend to agree. And I think um, especially where, where there might be a little bit more pushback is probably in the commercial sense because you'll have you know, the, the council for the parties that'll be saying, you know well, we agree for this to be confidential and we don't want you know, our, us messing up to be um, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, or, you know, for someone to find uh, potentially another basis for a claim there. Um, and, and, and what do you say in those instances? I mean, do you think that it's one of those things that, you know, uh, you have to, it's what the people want, or what, what, do you, what do you think? Look,
1: there's no one prescription for everybody. You, okay. you, you have to look at the situation. There are some circumstances where, for sure, arbitration is going to be best when it's done confidentially. Okay? There are other situations where there's going to be a public right to know. And we're trying to, to moderate through. So rather, I mean, look, arbitration covers lots of different things. The beautiful thing is that there are many different types of disputes, and there are many different ways of dealing with it. What we need to be is reasonable. International arbitration is about the quest to deal with reasonableness. How are we? We're going to give our faith and our trust in an independent trier of fact to decide things, and we expect them to be reasonable. And so we also expect the parties to be reasonable and how we deal with that. Transparency is going to be part of that, how that comes together. We've got to be focused on the circumstance. So rather than just saying there's just one answer, there's not just one answer. It's just like there's just not one answer to the issue of diversity, there's just not one answer to the issue of transparency. But we've got to be reasonable and we've got to work together in good faith see if we can get done. And I think that arbitration community is prepared to do that. And I think that we can get onto that. go, And I think it's already started. We just have a little bit more to go here. That's all. But it's a good start. It's just every long march starts with a few steps. And we're, we're already down a few, more than a few steps, but we're not quite all the way.
0: Yeah, I'm a believer. I mean, I think... I'm
1: an optimist, Chris. You got, you got to know. I am an optimist. I know that we can do better. I know. My life has been committed to that, whether it's my professional life, in arbitration, outside of that, we can do better. We will do better when we work together and find ways around it. And I, I, am, I still believe that. I still drink that Kool-Aid every day. <laughs> and I love well, I get up every morning. I love. I love the law. I love what I do. And I got to tell you that not everybody at my stage uh, in their career can say that. I get up every morning. I got a kick going. And I love what I do.
0: Well, and look, and that's great. And I think that's that sort of positivity and good energy is is sort of what's needed to have a sort of dynamic effect. And I think the point, if nothing else, from what you've just said about transparency, is that we got to at least talk about it. We got to at least consider the issue. We can't just let it continue to be something that's uh, this. I mean, because if we don't, the perception that will exist is the one that you saw. And it, it might have been The Wall Street Journal um, or another major American newspaper of uh, that arbitration is this sort of uh, clandestine smoke filled backroom sort of uh, secret dirty game. And and I don't think any of us quite like that association.
1: That that will be the end of arbitration if that is allowed to persist and and. It wasn't accurate in the first place, but it is totally inaccurate if we take these steps to make it more reasonable, more accessible, more transparent. And that is what everybody needs, because that's what you need to have in a, in a modern society. And we have the ability of technology to help intermediate and make that happen better and smoother, and we should do that while we have that opportunity, rather than hide it even more. And that's something, as a profession, we need to think about. And as a community, we need to be engaged about, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. The beautiful thing is lots of people have different opinions. And I can't wait till my next meeting in the American Bar Association. We're going to have somebody listening. I heard you, Appleton, on Tales of the Tribunal, and you were so full of horse feathers. They'll probably use another (laughs) word. Okay, And that's great. I, 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 I want dissent. I want engagement. I don't want people to just agree with me. I want people to say what the hell they feel. And we can try to find something that's going to be a bit better. That's the whole idea.
0: No, I I think that that, that's great. And that's um, that's admirable sort of a target to aim for. Um, Let's see before we, uh, we we shift a little bit. One more question I would ask you is. You know, we are starting to, maybe we're not quite out of the tunnel yet, but we do see the light. We're starting to, some folks are sticking their heads out from it um, on the other side of this COVID-19 thing. What predictions do you have about the world or the practice of international dispute resolution and arbitration coming on the other side of this time?
1: Uh, Well, Chris, I, 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 I think listeners, Tales of the Tribunal have heard a lot of the developments that are going on. Uh, And and for sure, we're not going back to the place where we started. So there was a lot of concern about remote hearings and the use of technology before this. Uh, I was always an early adopter of technology, but for sure, we're gonna be using technology. We're gonna do it because it's got better environmental effect. We're gonna do it because it's got more efficiency. and cost efficiency is a generally good thing in arbitration. Um, So I think you're gonna see a lot more opportunity to bring cost effectiveness into arbitration through the use of technology i also think that you're you're going to find more productive ways of being able to deal with document production document sharing uh witness hearings case management hearings i i would be surprised if i ever have one in person the last case management hearing i had to go to someone had to fly to washington dc from singapore okay to attend that management meeting no one's going to do that ever again Okay, that, that those days are over. Look at the carbon footprint. Look at the impact of cost, the delay. Not a chance now they're going to, it's all gonna be done by using software. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So we could still bring the parties together. That, that was the part I wanted, we'll do it by video. So that is gonna make a big difference. On the other hand, people are gonna to wanna to be together. We're gonna to understand the fragility, Of our human condition. Um, I've used the pandemic to go back and read things and think about things like um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's love in the time of cholera, things that I haven't looked at for a long time. In other words, there's a flashback, there's a sense of bringing us back and that nostalgic sense is going to bring us back and we're going to, I think, value the time we have together more uh, I think people have found it in their personal lives. I think they're going to find it in their professional engagement. So I, I, I'm not sure where it's all going to come out, but for sure there's going to be more tech. It's going to be, when well, I say high tech and high touch, we're going to have both. But it's going to be safe touch, right? We're 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 now we're now post COVID. So but, but but it's going to use technology to give better engagement, better audience, better connection, and to me that's the best way. That that's the most positive outcome we're going to find. That's what I expect. Um, now, can I be disappointed? Yeah, for sure. Okay, but I think we're going to come out of this better than we started, despite the tremendous, tremendous personal costs, the terrible costs to all of our communities, the tremendous loss of life and suffering that that's occurred. Um, maybe maybe we'll get something that's a little more positive at the end of this terrible ordeal. And, and that there would be some benefit, but it would never weigh the cost that we've all been going through.
0: No, sure. And um, we will take those. And I think those are good predictions. Um, And I, I, I would bet that that is what we'll probably see unfolding here as the years sort of tick by. Well, um, Barry, shifting topics just a bit. Um, you You mentioned a, a few throughout this conversation, but I'd be curious to know who have been some of you, the guiding forces or mentors or influences on you as your career has sort of unfolded.
1: Um, well, you, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting. Um, I had a chance to mention um, Andy Lowenfeld at, at NYU, who was uh, sort of the leader in the quest for reasonableness uh, in international arbitration. Um, so, so he had a, a real profound sense and how to approach international arbitration, how the benefits of arbitration could be used to have the peaceful settlement of disputes. Um, but, but there are others. You know, I've learned a lot from people that are from outside of the arbitration space who've been able to provide lots of ideas about what we could do. I mean, you know, uh, for example, take Peter Gabriel, the musician. I don't know if you know, but Peter Gabriel has a strong commitment to international human rights. And I met him at an international human rights conference. Um, I mean, you wouldn't have expected that. Or, or, or take another person from music, Quincy Jones. So Quincy Jones is a music producer. He is an, a remarkable person. But he has spent a lot of time trying to bring people together and bridge questions of conflict by diversity and discussion. Now, why can't we learn from Quincy? Hell, he's won every award that you could imagine and he's an amazing guy. So you don't have to just get it. We don't have to only learn from the people that are in the legal sphere. We can learn from people that are outside. Now, there are some amazing people in our sphere, don't get me wrong. Um, I'm just saying that there's a lot of learning that we can do, and there's a lot that we can accomplish in that way. Um, I have to also say, though, that I learned a lot from uh, Rudy Tytel. Uh, Rudy Tytel's professor, she is the mother of the uh, sort of uh, the International Law School of Transitional Justice, the way trying to bridging deep conflicts, how to bring ongoing conflicts like the, um, the, the disputes in Colombia between the FARC and the government, or trying to bring reconciliation into South Africa, or the Cold War that took place in Chile. Uh, how do you find reconciliation when you've had decades or generations of unfairness? These are real profound questions that the world has all over. I see that in my own charitable work and philanthropic work. I see it in my day-to-day life when I'm in the United States and Canada. And these are, I think, really good models to look for as well. So these are all sort of different ideas on how to try to to deal with this, make things a better place. And I think that's what mentors can do. They can help you just think about things a little bit differently. Just help you shift a little bit and help get you back onto that right, that even keel. And and so that that's sort of where I look to these mentors from, whether they're legal or outside the legal side.
0: Sure, no, um, the, the, that's a great list. I and mean, that's a, and some high bars to set, I would say as well. Um. Okay, so some rapid-fire questions or of those a little bit more
1: uh, casual ones. Um, what are you reading right now? What kind of books are,
0: are on your bookshelf? Uh,
1: I just uh, reread uh, Life in the Time of Cholera, uh, which I, okay. I think is a, an amazing book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I like to read things from people who live in a different place for me. It gives me a more sense of, of culture and, and approach. Uh, next on the list is uh, Chinua Achebe's Uh, who's a Nigerian author uh, and a a fabulous author. Um, I I try to find different works that are gonna help me think a little bit differently and and get a little bit more. Um, I really like art. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about art and seeing things with art. And I try to use that as well to sort of help me think my way through. And uh, I can't wait to get back uh, you know, the, the Metro Museum of Art is now reopened. Uh, that, that's really exciting. Unfortunately, I'm still in Canada, which is mostly in lockdown. So our museums are closed, but uh, I can't wait to get there. There, there was a, a marvelous uh, piece of art. It was a retelling of Washington crossing the Delaware by an Aboriginal artist that I really like, Kent Monkman. Uh, he tells it from an Aboriginal and an LGBTQ perspective. So totally different way of talking about that narrative and 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 I'm all for more discussion and more input and it's, it's magisterial it takes over the entrance of the met so it retells wow. from an aboriginal perspective the discovery of america or the manhattan purchase so it's uh hmm. it's a really interesting type of thing so i'm looking for new experiences i'm looking for something different along the way plus I like some oldies and goldies to help me think about things.
0: Okay. No, that, that again, that's another uh, good array of uh, of sources.
1: How about music? What kind of, uh, what are some of your favorite artists? Um, okay. So I, I have some very eclectic musical tastes. Um, mm. So um, I, 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 I actually like um, a, a group called the Jerry Cans. They, uh, they, they're from uh, Nunavut. They uh, sing in the Nooktituk. Uh, but they're not Inuk. They're they not Inuit, uh, but they sing in the local language. And uh, they're hilarious. Uh, or um, there's, uh, I, I love uh, Montreal jazz great Oscar Peterson, who is an exceptionally talented guy. And, of course, I have a friend of mine who's a musician. He also collects uh, aboriginal large names that Kevin Herney plays with the Naked Ladies. Uh, and he is uh, amazing and talented and decent as can be. So uh, I, I'm sort of listening there, and, uh, and because of the issues in Canada with this uh, terrible issue with the residential schools, I've been listening again to uh, Buffy St. Marie, and uh, just, just sort of bringing me back down into sort of a, a, a sense of uh, reconciliation and trying to understand what's going on. Sure. No, no. Um...
0: I know. I, yeah, should. I, mean, Canadian, no, I
1: should be listening to Drake. I know.
0: <laughs> I was going to say uh, the, the king of Canada himself, Drizzy. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: it's work, we're working. We're working on it. <laughs> There's still hope for yeah. me yet. Yeah, don't worry. Well, he brought an NBA championship to, to Toronto. So, I mean, what else can you do? That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, okay. So we, we're coming down to the last couple of questions we've got here, uh, Barry. Um, let's say you were approached by a recent grad or, um, someone that's looking to break into the field, which is, uh, you apparently pretty frequently are. And they're saying, I'd like to break into the world of international law and international arbitration. Um, what advice would you give them?
1: Moots, professional associations, look for internships, look for those opportunities. Um, the tremendous opportunity that you can get from an international law moot is incredible. Because they have professional associations. They've got ways of networking and connections that are just fabulous. I know, Chris, you do work with with the VIS, and that is a tremendous opportunity. The Jessup, same thing, tremendous opportunity. Um, You can do it with law schools. You can do it with the American Society of International Law. You can do it with the American Bar Association. You can do it with the ABA, the IBA, the LCIA, and the Chartered Institute. You can do all of them. And they are great opportunities, but you need to meet and you need to mingle. You need to find ways to be able to get in. And because once you get that step and you gotta be prepared to take that step, no one's gonna open that door. They can unlock the door, but you gotta be prepared to open the door. I will help everybody if as long as they come and open that door, but they gotta wanna be there. And if they are, we'll find some way. We'll work our ways through. And there are lots of other people like me. I'm not just one. There are many. So that that's what I that's what I tell students. Just
0: start. no. And I think that last point's a strong one. Is that you know I was talking with a colleague recently that you know it's almost an embarrassment of riches in in terms of the number of opportunities and projects that a number of international organizations have. It's it's a problem. It's matching those opportunities up with students and people that are willing or looking quote looking to break into the field. I mean they're the the, the work is much, and the, the hands are few. So I think that if we can find out how to bridge those gaps, but, um, but, that, that's good for everybody.
1: But Chris, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the information is so available, because you can just listen to Tales of the Tribunal and other podcasts. You can get information so you know. That gives you so much more. It used to be that you used to be able to have to say something if you went to a cocktail party. You had to have you know 15 or 20 seconds that you could say something topical and knowledgeable and i can just do that by listening to these amazing podcasts i I mean it is just gives you so much more context and knowledge and timely information the world can give you that stuff and and it wasn't just because covid but covid got us an opportunity to reconnect in that way and so so look it's not going to be enough just listening to podcasts don't get me wrong Uh, You can't just subscribe and you should all subscribe to Tales of the Tribunal, but you can't just subscribe and that's going to get you a job, but it can give you the context and give you the ability to know how to get there. And that is amazing. So I I, I didn't want to miss that as a tremendous opportunity as well.
0: Well, no that was well said and i look i gotta say barry i, mean, I, I might need to get you as the promoter i mean you have given a, some good <laughs> shout outs to the show throughout the throughout our time together um last question uh let's say that it's 5 p.m on a friday uh you know the work docket is full is clean um no clients are calling um you can do whatever you'd like for the weekend um post COVID or no COVID.
1: how are you going to spend your weekend oh that's easy it's a it's going to be an art show for me I'm gonna go down, it's gonna be to a gallery or to a museum, and I'm gonna get exposed to some art, something different, something I have not seen, and I wanna get exposed to a lot of different things because that's the only way. And the more I don't understand it, the better it's gonna be. Uh, I just wanna get outside of my head and outside of that space and see if I can experience somebody in a different perspective in a different way. And that's a beautiful thing about art, for sure i'm going to find something that's different so uh and 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 if we're back it's probably going to be with a glass of wine i was on the cambridge university wine tasting team so it's going to be a glass of wine and then an art show it's going to be the two oh,
0: well that's amazing and you know i would be remiss if i didn't take this opportunity since we've spoken about art so much to give a shout out to um what one of my fellow south carolinians has done um, Darla Moore, the, the, the brilliant mind behind the business school there, she has founded an art show in her native Lake City, South Carolina, some years ago. Um, it is interesting in that she gets these really world famous artists, and the only way that you can get access to some of these rare collections is you got to go to Lake City. And it is, you know, um, it's about an hour and a half from Columbia, not too far from Myrtle Beach, um, but it's a shout out to Art Fields, and it goes on every spring or early summer. Um, and so if anyone listening out there is also a fan of art, you should find yourself down to the great state of South Carolina for a truly amazing art experience. Another good reason to go to South Carolina. Absolutely. So, um, Barry, before we wrap up, uh, you have any shout outs that you want to give before we get out of here?
1: Oh, my goodness. Um, I've, I've done some along the way because I was worried we weren't going to get there um let let's see well we we uh, who have we missed we've missed my my colleague and friend uh kabir dugal we got a shout out to him um i i just love Tefatni fatsney at foley hoag she is wonderful and generous with her time and her thought leadership uh my colleague krista Nicola, who's my current co-chair at the aba international arbitration sure. committee who is a wonderful individual and uh professor robert house at the New York Law School, who's collaborated and shared his thought leadership with me for the last 20 years, and I know listens to this show. So, I wanna shout out to all of them and thank them all for being just such wonderful friends to me over the years here. And to all of the listeners here today, new people I can meet.
0: Absolutely, and I'll echo, I will co-sign, give my own tips of the cap to all those that you just mentioned. Barry, our time has just flown
1: by together, and unfortunately, we're at the end of it. Uh, Thank you so much for coming by the show. It was my pleasure. I am so excited to have made it on season three of Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you for inviting me along. Absolutely, and we're glad to have you. And we'll definitely have
0: to have you back in a subsequent season, maybe for um, a a team up episode with one of the folks that you
1: mentioned today. Um, Barry, you mind signing us off? It would be my pleasure. I was hoping you were going to ask. I've been waiting my whole life to do this. I am Barry Appleton, and there is no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time.
0: What did I tell you? Barry is knowledgeable about so many things in the legal world the business world, and especially the world of international public and private law. We probably could have talked for another hour or two and still had more time left over. We'll absolutely have to have him back sometime. And not just because he gave a couple of shout outs to TOT. Also, don't forget, Arbitration Idol is live. If you want a chance to have digital coffee with some familiar faces and friends of the show, like Xi'an Bao, Rekha Rangachari, Kabir Dugal, and many, many more, the only way you have a chance to do so is if you donate. So you can follow Arbitration Idol on LinkedIn, or you can follow the link that we'll post here in the show notes. Either way, it's all going to a great cause. As always, if you want to support the show, we'd always appreciate a like or follow on LinkedIn and or a review on your podcasting platform of choice. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBeta Solutions, and the show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Show interns are Matthew Cotham and Ramatulahi Jallo. Feedback and comments for the show can be sent to talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. That's it for this week. It's hard to believe but there are just two episodes left in Season 3. Can you believe it? We're already at the end. In any case, thank you for tuning in. Really appreciate you and all of your support. Thanks for being part of TOT. And until next time, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.